Hello and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of September 22nd, Reactions to the September FOMC. I'm your host, Dan Creter, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss our takeaways to today's FOMC meeting and what it may mean for credit spreads going forward. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Well, Dan, good to be back here recording another one of a reaction to the Fed meeting episodes uh, just minutes after the conclusion of the Q&A session. I guess we could start here. Let's start high level. What were just your your main takeaways from either the statement or the press conference? Just your, your general feeling walking away. Yeah, in total, I thought it was a pretty consensus meeting. I thought some of the sources of uncertainty heading into the meeting fell a little bit on the hawkish side. And you saw the Treasury market react accordingly. I think the biggest mover in Treasuries was the 530s flattener. But uh, a couple of the things that I thought were you know, not surprising, but some sources of hawkishness. First, you had the dots, the 2022 and 2023 dots. And heading into this meeting, we knew that it was a possibility that those median dots for those two years would move higher. It only required, I think, one or two FOMC members to up their forecasts for the end of 2022 and 2023. And we got that. I think the 2023 dots were a little bit more surprising. We had the median dot at 1% for the end of 2023. Now, whether looking at the median dot makes more sense than looking at any other function of the distribution, I think is another conversation. But you saw the market react to the increase in the median dot. And then, of course, the headline, I think the biggest takeaway I had from this meeting was Chair Powell's comment before the press conference, but after the statement, when he said that it was likely that the tapering process is going to conclude around the middle of next year. And so likely to me, that implies a November taper announcement starting in December and reducing purchases by $15 billion a month, that's $10 billion in treasuries and $5 billion in MBS, and that gets you to the end of purchases by the end of June of next year. And then another question in the press conference kind of pressed Chair Powell about the possibility of a taper announcement in November, and Powell said something to the effect of, I wouldn't need to see a strong employment report next month, but I'd like to see a very good one as it relates to announcing a taper in November. So I thought he, as close as he could to really strongly hinting a November taper announcement, he did just that. Yes, and that's what I walked away with as well. He said that the unemployment goal was, I don't remember the exact words, just about met or something like that. So very strongly hinting that it was going to be a beginning of November taper. And I like the way you characterized it in your response that anything that was a little bit uncertain did lean a bit hawkish. I think the end of asset purchases by the middle of next year comes as a bit of a surprise. The bigger surprise to me was the dots. Our listeners will know I'm not a huge fan of the dots, but I, you know, after the hawkish surprise we got at the June SCP, I really didn't think that we were going to have another hawkish surprise in the dot plot, and I was obviously wrong on that. So it seems the Fed is delivering a coordinated hawkish message here. The Treasury market responding, as you would expect, with the 530s flattener. 
I guess it's important to note here that risk assets, though, maybe they're off the highs. They didn't seem to hate the message much at all. Equity still set to finish today deeply into the green, whether that's because of the Evergrande news and the way Chair Powell actually characterized Evergrande during the Q&A or as a result of the FOMC, that's probably open for debate. But it doesn't seem like risk assets are reacting too negatively to the hawkishness from the Fed. And I guess the question is, should they? Yeah, I think one possibility there is Chair Powell, as he's done recently, he really separated the liftoff from tapering. And he talked about this satisfying the liftoff test and how the liftoff test had a lot different criteria than the test for starting tapering. He said in order to lift off, we would have to see labor market conditions consistent with maximum employment. And so there's still a lot of slack there. One possibility, I think, with respect to the reaction in, say, equity markets is that while we are marching closer and closer to this taper announcement, rates are going to remain at the zero lower bound, at least according to what Chair Powell said for you know at least a year now. And so I think that's one reason that risk assets have been able to digest this message of you know an imminent taper, but that being not the same as marching closer and closer to liftoff. Right. And so in many ways, this is just like the realization of something we've been saying for a while, that ultimately the pace and timing of tapering is not really going to matter much for risk assets. We knew it was coming, and this sort of ends up being a worst-case scenario. I was hesitant to use those words, but it couldn't really have gotten much more hawkish than this, a taper starting in November and winding down by the end of next year. And, you know, it really equities are whipsawing around here, up and down and up, and really not showing much direction here. So it just shows that tapering, at least at its announcement, is not going to be a significant driver of risk assets. We're not going to see a quote-unquote taper tantrum this time around. Now, as we get into the teeth of tapering, you know, in early 2022, and we start to see the market have to start to absorb more treasury supply, I think then you could have an argument for, you know, you start to see some pressure on spreads. But as we talked about last week here, Dan, treasury is going to cut coupon sizes, most likely, unless something goes sideways on that front. And that should cancel out the end of asset purchases, you know, from a supply that actually hits the end of the market standpoint. And maybe just all the way through, QE just ends up being sort of a non-event and it becomes more about the timeline for when we're going to raise rates. It's hard. I feel like you have the chair saying one thing and the dot saying another. How do you reconcile that in your head? Yeah. So it's interesting. You brought up the coupon cuts and coincidentally, I think Treasury is expected to reduce coupon auction sizes on November 3rd, which is the date of their next quarterly refunding announcement. It's also the date of the next FOMC meeting. So we could have on November 3rd, an announcement for a decrease in coupon auction sizes in the morning and then in the afternoon plans for a decrease in Fed purchases, and they would likely just about cancel out. I think we're expecting an average of $12 billion in reductions per month of Treasury coupon auction sizes and $15 billion in Fed purchase reductions. So yeah, like you said, that could just about wash out. And I think the timing works out pretty nicely for the Fed. It's unclear if that is just a nice coincidence for the Fed or if that's something that they preferred to announce on the same date that Treasury is likely to announce a reduction in coupon auction sizes. That remains to be seen, but it certainly softens the blow of a reduction in Fed accommodation. And then this gets back to a topic we talked a lot about in our last week's episode, actually, which is the stock versus flow argument, because we know the stock of financial reserves is going to stay extraordinarily high, but the flow is going to slow down. And we're going to see, apart from the debt ceiling ramifications at the end of the year, we're going to see reserves come out of the financial system. Once that's over, we're going to see reserves actually just be held steady for the first time. And for me, that's where the impact on credit 
potentially comes. Not that I think there's going to be a widening. I don't think that, to be very clear. I just wonder if it begins to sap credit of its narrowing potential to continue tightening to theoretically new historical lows at just about six basis points now off the cyclical low here. It does seem like you need a pretty strong tailwind to keep pushing spreads further and further narrower. And I wonder if the end of tapering, if that's just enough to maybe keep spreads here and prevent them from narrowing further. Yeah, Dan, I think it's a great point. And it goes back to what we talked about in our last weekly, which is that it's very possible, if not likely, that liquidity conditions are right now about as good as they're going to get. And through that lens, the pace of tapering does matter. It's not a huge factor, but whether the Fed was going to reduce purchases each month or at each meeting, as we talked about in our weekly, has implications for the terminal level of reserves once the Fed is done purchasing. And that difference is about $200 billion. So not a massive number, but still about 5% difference in the level of reserves from where they are right now. And the Fed indicating that's going to be tapering a little bit more quickly than in the alternative scenario, I think is just another reason to expect that liquidity, like you said, is not going to cause spreads to blow out here, but it's just going to make the environment more challenging as the Fed has indicated that it's going to start tapering in November and start doing it likely at a $15 billion per month clip. You know, while we're on the topic of reserves, I think maybe here's an appropriate time to talk about more of a technical adjustment the Fed made today, which was essentially doubling the capacity of the RRP by doubling the amount each counterparty is allowed to take from 80 to 160 billion. And I don't think this move was overly expected. I mean, we, among others on the street, have been saying that eventually they may have to tweak these limits, but it didn't seem like it was a pressing need at the moment. We did see Fed funds drift a little bit lower in the range, but it still never breached the eight basis point level. So it didn't seem like there was anything particularly acute. And yet the Fed doubles the counterparty limit. What was your read on that? So I took away a couple things from this part of the policy announcement. First, the Fed is pretty willing to adjust these limits to make sure that they're not very binding, which raises the question of you know why they even have these limits to begin with. But that's a discussion for another time. Secondly, it doesn't seem from the data that we have that these limits were binding as of the end of August. I think the highest single counterparty took $65 billion as of the end of August. That's below the $80 billion limit. Now, maybe the Fed has seen something in the past couple of weeks, which has indicated that the $80 billion limit was binding. And it'll be interesting to see tomorrow's take up if that increases significantly with the higher counterparty limit. Other than that, I don't read too much into this decision by the Fed. I think the Fed is comfortable allowing this RRP take up to continue to increase. And that's likely what's going to happen in the near term. I'm with you that the Fed has no problem seeing the volume increase. The thing I'm having a hard time squaring is why did they do this? Like you said, there didn't seem to be any pressing need for it. We haven't seen a larger counterpart in the 65, at least to our knowledge. I just don't totally get it. You know, we've seen some speculation that it could be related to the debt ceiling. We have bill paydowns coming and then the potential for some short end investors maybe avoiding bills around the projected X date for the debt ceiling. I mean, yeah, maybe. It doesn't seem like that's a big enough potential flow to me to be the catalyst for this move from the Fed. So, you know, I guess, you know, maybe sometimes a simple explanation is just the one most likely to be right. It might as well just increase this now when there's no need to rather than get to a point where it's needed. I get that. It's just while we're marching towards tapering, then to now double this just seemed a bit odd. But, you know, maybe I shouldn't read into something that maybe there isn't a whole lot to be read into. Yeah, that's sort of the way that I'm thinking about it. I just don't think there's much of a cost from the Fed standpoint to increasing this counterparty limit. So why not? If there's any thought to do so, why not do it? Especially if there's some thought that the debt ceiling maybe could be a situation 
you know, you're not meeting again until November here. Let's just do this now just in case. Yeah, I get it. I'll agree with you there. Okay, well, let's see. I think we've covered tapering and its impact on credit. Uh, we talked about the change at the short end. Do we want to spend any more time on the dots here? You know, I think we covered most of the dots. The only other thing that that I'd say, you know, moving away from the Fed funds expectations, unsurprisingly, we had a downward revision in 2021 GDP, an upward revision to unemployment. And then the inflation forecast was revised higher from 3% to 3.7%. None of those things I thought terribly unexpected, but worth mentioning. I was a little surprised by the dots, but again, I don't think they hold too much predictive power for what's actually going to happen in the economy or even necessarily signaling what's going to actually happen to the path of the federal funds rate, to be honest. So for me, as long as the the increase is small and it seems that the increase was small, I'm not going to read too much into the dots, even if it was a bit surprising. And it does seem like that's going to be the case here, that the market's going to shrug that off, at least for the most part. So I mean, those are the three main topics. So I we can look now at more of the notes from the Q&A. I think there were some kernels in there that are worth discussing. We don't have to spend time on this, but I, a lot of the Q&A was dedicated to some of the trading accounts for the Federal Reserve presidents, which maybe made this Q&A session a little less instructive because there were at least three or four questions on the topic that, uh, you know, not going to have much impact on markets. But one question, maybe the one from the Q&A that I found the most interesting was, the chair was asked about the unemployment goals that relates to raising for the first time and specifically was asked about black unemployment. And I think this is the first time that he's actually been asked directly if he's going to target different unemployment rates for different segments of the population. And that's something that I've been thinking about as it relates to the evolution of the way the Fed's talked about unemployment, particularly given the impact that the pandemic has had on unemployment that uh, that was something that could lead to the Fed maybe having a different decision function relating to unemployment and the federal funds rate in the current cycle versus historical ones. And I think he gave a a bit of a non-committal answer, but basically said that they won't be targeting any one segment of unemployment, that they look at unemployment holistically, and there are multiple measurements, and that generally all those metrics of unemployment should move together so it won't be watching just one. How did you read that? Yeah, I had the same takeaway. I wasn't surprised by his answer. And most of the time when the Fed chair is asked about any specific employment metric, they tend to sort of sidestep the question by saying we look at the labor market broadly. And so we don't look at just any one metric such as the black unemployment rate. But you're right, it has been something that the Fed has talked a lot about, especially in the aftermath of the pandemic. And it's a metric that certainly has gotten more weight with respect to Fed policy, I would think. But the key takeaway, and I'd like to know if you agree or not, is that it doesn't seem like the Fed is going to be approaching unemployment much differently this time through as it relates to how they have in similar cycles in the past. Another interesting topic he got in the Q&A was a question that sort of tried to draw a parallel between the Evergrande situation and corporate defaults in the U.S., you know, kind of two important things to take away from here. First, he talked about how the Evergrande situation seemed to be highly specific to in China. He did not seem to have much concern of it rolling over to the U.S. I mean, I think that's obviously the consensus view, but nice to hear the chair of the FOMC say that, you know, the main mechanism is through confidence channels and things of that nature where we wouldn't expect to see any contagion here. But then perhaps more interesting for our purposes, he talked a bit about the corporate default rate and talked specifically about how they were, in his words, very concerned about the 
amount of corporate leverage leading into the pandemic. And that's something we were talking about a lot in 2019, the amount of corporate leverage, something Yellen harped on at the time and, and Paul alike, talking about a concern about too much leverage in the corporate sector. He then talked about the pandemic arriving and then being very concerned about a significant default wave. Obviously, when you have highly leveraged corporations being cut off from earnings streams that you'd expect to massive defaults. We didn't ultimately see that. Powell correctly credits the CARES Act and the actions of the FOMC at the time. And then that was the sort of extent of his, his answer. He didn't really seem to directly address leverage in the corporate sector now, which isn't appreciably lower than it was in 2019. Obviously, it went up and now we've seen some deleveraging. Depending on the way you're looking at corporate leverage here, it's going to be right around 2019 levels, though, maybe higher, maybe a little bit lower. So on the one hand, he says we were concerned about corporate leverage levels back in 2019, which are very comparable to where they are now. And I got the impression he wasn't concerned about corporate leverage now. What was your take? Yeah, it certainly seemed that way. He talked about, like you said, the immense concern that the Fed had about corporate leverage back in 2019 and then the beginning of 2020 as the pandemic started. He did seem to imply, maybe not as literally as I was taking it, but he did seem to take on the attitude that we are out of the woods with respect to corporate leverage. Like this is just a thing of the past. We were worried about it in 2019. He made it seem like we're less worried about it now. I thought that was interesting. I thought that was a good point that I didn't really fully pick up on, but but you're right. Corporate leverage is not significantly lower than it was in 2019. And then interestingly, just that we're talking about it now, tomorrow on Thursday, the Fed Z1 data is out, and that's sort of the most official metric of corporate leverage in the system. So that's something to keep an eye on. I would say there are differences between now and 2019 regarding corporate leverage, even if leverage on a gross basis is similar to where it was back then, the liquidity conditions now are just not the same as they were back then with obviously abundant reserves now and RRP at 1.2 trillion and going to go higher now, theoretically with a higher counterpart on them versus where we were in 2019, which is we were looking at scarce reserves. We had a sulfur spike and we were looking at needing a repo facility, which we ultimately got first in the form of emergency repo measures and then now a permanent facility for future episodes like this. So just looking at the way that central banking and monetary policy has changed in the past 20 years with the era of QE and negative rates around the world and things of that nature, perhaps looking at corporate leverage or debt in an economy in general, you know, whether that's consumer leverage or industrial leverage, maybe we have to start looking at things in terms of leverage as it relates to reserves in the financial system. It's said differently, are there enough reserves to allow for that leverage to keep the system going? Because we have similar amounts of leverage in the system now versus 2019. Back then we were concerned, now we're not. Maybe at least one of the contributing factors there is just the amount of reserves in the system. So something to keep an eye on. Obviously, that's a longer term trend, much longer term trend, but something I've personally been thinking a lot more about You know, when I'm trying to think of the path for credit spreads or what could be the next catalyst to a significant widening. I think reserve supply, the amount of money in the financial system is perhaps even more an important indicator now and more important than we even realize. Yeah. And it's not dissimilar from instead of looking at balance sheet leverage or debt as a proportion of equity or total assets, you've looked at something like interest coverage ratios, right? As a function of all of these reserves in the system, interest rates are now lower. And even though corporations hold a lot more debt on their balance sheets, 
they're much better equipped to cover these interest costs. And I think that's sort of the similar thing to what you're saying, where, you know, even though leverage ratios are at the high end of where they've been historically right now, interest coverage ratios are not. These corporations are, because of this Fed accommodation, are well able to service their debt. That's outstanding. Another great point, and just to put a bow on the conversation, you know, assuming leverage isn't going to drop significantly from here, I wouldn't expect it to. We've probably seen the majority of deleveraging we're going to see. When we do, if we fast forward a couple of years and we get to an environment where the Fed's raising rates and money supply is shrinking, corporate leverage is going to be an area of concern again. And maybe that's stated in the obvious, but it's just worth mentioning here to end the conversation. Let's see. I didn't have too much else. I, you know, he was asked a question on the vice chair position talking about Randy Quarles' term ending on October 13th. Didn't have a lot on offer. No guidance whatsoever on any terms of replacement. Obviously, we wouldn't expect that. The only thing I had was that Chair Powell seemed to say that he would still honor the expectation, or however you want to word it, that the vice chair guides the FOMC on regulation matters. I don't know, kind of a shrug for me. Would you get anything on the vice chair discussion? Certainly a fact that we're watching. Yeah, I thought it was somewhat interesting. I think it's important to keep in mind that Chair Powell's term is up as well as the vice chair for supervisions. So I thought it was somewhat interesting that Powell said something to the effect of, you know, the vice chair gets to set the regulatory agenda and really owns that area of the Fed, where you could interpret that as Chair Powell, remember, appointed Fed chair by a Republican and a Republican himself who oversaw a Fed that was doing a lot of deregulation under uh, Randall Quarles as the vice chair. Chair Powell was saying today that whoever is appointed the next vice chair for supervision is going to be fully in charge of the regulatory aspects of the Fed. I thought that was not surprising again, but something that you know he might have been saying as a sort of wink-wink to President Biden. Oh, great point. And one I didn't even really realize the wink wink to President Biden there. But it does just another, you know, breadcrumb to expect that we're going to have more regulation in the financial system when we do have a new vice chair, something that will likely not be good news for credit spreads upon realization. It's a 2022 story, I think, but one that is coming. He was asked a question on whether or not Quarles still set the regulatory agenda until he was replaced. I don't remember his exact answer. I remember feeling like it was sort of non-committal, just wrapped up in the, we have no information on that for you today. I ultimately don't really think it matters much. I don't think they're going to push forward any major regulation during a, a lame duck session for quarrels. So I didn't read much into that. I don't know, Dan, that's about everything I took away from the Q&A. Did you have anything else in your notes? No, I really didn't. I thought the most important things were were Powell's comments, you know, right before the press conference. And then I, I thought the vice chair for supervision discussion was somewhat interesting. Otherwise, it was a pretty consensus meeting, I thought. Yeah, I agree. Three wood right down the middle of the fairway. And uh, assuming you don't want to talk in more detail about the trading activities of various Fed presidents, why don't we wrap it up with this? You know, obviously, we are constantly focused on credit spreads here. Did your View on credit spreads change at all after the the Fed meeting? If so, how? And if they didn't, you know, what's your expectations? No, today I think reinforced a lot of what we've been thinking and, and writing about with respect to credit spreads moving forward, which is that conditions are going to remain pretty accommodative in the near term. And then later on in 2022, as the Fed's tapering starts to really impact markets, as the Fed allows treasuries and MBS to clear the market without its support, that's when things are going to start to get more challenging for credit spreads. So I expect credit spreads to hit their tights around the end of this year, maybe in, in November, December of this year. And then I think things are going to get a little bit heavier for credit. 
Okay. Well, we are in agreement on that. And I think we can wrap it up there. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads. And we'll see you back here again next week. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.